Now, I'm a big believer in basically starting with the basics, making sure you build up a base, a backbone. I think it's really, really critical in all facets of business. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggins, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show, we're going to talk about your journey as a property investor and how you can end up playing bigger deals as your skill set improves. We're going to dig into the idea of eventually becoming more a seasoned or even sophisticated investor as a property person. You can end up in a place where you're doing all sorts of activities inside of real estate, but it often feels uh, that you're missing out on things when you get started on real estate because it is a bit of a learning curve. We're going to dig into that today, so it should be an awesome show. Welcome back, you crazy urban property investors. Thank you for choosing me to help you with real estate. And of course, if it's your first time tuning into the program today, hey, you're in for a treat. Welcome aboard. Remember, we have a rule here. Play the show in double speed. Don't waste your life. We've got plenty of years on earth. We just waste a lot of time. So don't waste time listening to me in normal speed. Double speed me. I do not sound like a chipmunk. Hey, I'm up early today. Uh, It's like 5.30. I don't even know if I can do a podcast at 5.30. My brain is not even awake. I could be asleep right now as I talk to you. My wife, my little Gopnik wife, has uh, woken me up early because she is off to Adelaide and she's flying uh, to Adelaide because she's a tattoo artist. Yes, she's actually a very good portrait painter and has fallen into being a tattooist. So uh, if you feel like a tattoo, please reach out to me. But uh, she specializes in nipples. Yes, I bet you didn't even know that was a thing. Uh, She basically helps people improve their nipples. What a life passion. And I tell you what, uh, obviously, there's a lot of nipples out there that need, need improvement because business is good for her. But she also helps people who, uh, you know, have survive, for example, breast cancer and helps them with nipples and things like that. So it's a really honorable thing she does. But I tell you what, I am sick of looking at nipples. She doesn't even call them nipples. Uh, She calls them areolas. Every day I've got to witness basically different types of nipples and the shading they're about to get. And I tell you what, I never thought I would fall out of love with the concept of the nipple. But uh, I tell you what, I've seen too many of late. But hey, you haven't come along to this podcast to listen to my wife's uh, expertise. You've come along to learn about property. And we're going to dig into what that looks like because for a lot of property investors, the idea of building a portfolio is phase one. For many other property investors, there is other phases that they want to achieve. And today I want to take you through some of the ways that uh, more experienced deal makers find real estate, what type of real estate fits people on their journey, uh, what kind of skill sets you come across inside of the real estate marketplace and the different types of real estate 
deals to be done. So it is a bit of a deal show today and we're going to dig into that because as we grow older in real estate, we quite often need to try different things. There is a point, a tipping point where it's very, very difficult to even own more real estate because of lending. Banks only want to lend so much. So as an investor, you can actually do other things. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But I think it's good to start at the beginning that the first phase of investment, remember there's kind of three phases. The first phase is acquisition. This is where you build your base. You build uh, a property portfolio, if you like. And I think it's very, very cool to just build a property portfolio right. If you get that right in the beginning, the rest becomes a lot easier. What building a property portfolio looks like is really an aggressive buying strategy over the first 10 years of your really uh portfolio acquisition. And this is where you tend to have to control debt. You've got high LVRs. You are really the property, if anything, is is kind of controlling you. And as such, you need very good mindset to get through that phase and very good strategies to, to basically hold those assets and watch them mature. The simple concept, if you like, is acquisitions is designed to actually pay down debt because the next phase of property investment is known as consolidation. This is where we tend to sell down some of our properties, keep the best performers, reduce debt, and even now have such a good rental income against debt that the rent starts to obliterate the debt on the real estate we own. Consolidation is an important part of the puzzle because it really does help you get to the final stage of investment, which is known as lifestyle, where you live off the cash flow and the equity, and you've really paid off your debts. So you're a debt-free person with cash flow and equity. It's a pretty cool place to be. So there is a journey. And again, Today, we're going to go through really the different phases that people tend to go through as a property investor and what type of assets they tend to go and find. And of course, uh, don't let me stop you not thinking big. There's certainly people I've met, one out of a thousand, who have the Midas touch when it comes to real estate, really don't know anything about, for example, joint ventures, syndications, developments, structural renovations, and they just have the Midas touch. They go and do it and uh, it works out really, really well for them. I've also seen a bucket load of people that don't lay the foundation right and get to know real estate well. They tend to be, uh, you know, I guess, unable to participate in the bigger deal making that's out there in real estate. So it's all a learning curve for us all. We're all learning. We're always um, basically, you know, uh, thinking through things and partaking in things and creating knowledge. And uh, quite often knowledge obviously creates an outcome. Really, when it comes to being a property investor, there's there's puzzles to go and solve. So today I'm going to talk about the property trifecta and uh, it's a good trifecta. The first part of that trifecta, if you like, part one, 
is to build that portfolio I just talked about. Really good backbone assets that you can rely on, uh, that you're not tinkering with, that are basically good blue chip properties. Um, And if you can get four or five of them, really what that's going to do if you hold them a long time is create a passive income later. Now, it might mean you need to hold those assets for 15, 20, 25 years. But the beautiful part, if you can go and do that, is you're going to end up with a really simple form of income coming into your world known as passive income, which comes from property. As simple as it sounds, the rent is put into your bank account. The next sort of area that property investors get to is often where we start to create active income from our asset base. And of course, active income, if you like, is doing things to real estate to change the trajectory of its cash flow, manipulate its cash flow. By way of an example, I uh, I got a property up in Brisbane. Uh, I decided to furnish it and executive rent it. Simple as that sounds, I had to be very active to do that. I had to do a small renovation, had to do, uh, you know, a design package and get active with the asset. Uh, The rent has gone up $190 a week. So I've taken my backbone assets and I've manipulated the value, which is kind of the second part of the puzzle. It's not passive income. It's more active income. And the third part of the property trifecta is really active income through speculation assets. Really active income, if you like, through using equity to create cash flow. And uh, in the previous example, I used basically an asset to activate and change the trajectory of the cash flow. When it comes to uh, speculation assets, what you're doing is you're using equity and putting them into something to get a return, a one-off return, and a lump chunk of cash flow. And quite often, uh, property investors do that because they have equity, lazy equity, that they can't use to buy more real estate because they've reached their peak level of, of borrowing in their life cycle. Really, they've got a lot of equity. What they go and do is get involved in other asset classes. And one inside of real estate is to do, for example, a development. Basically, you develop something, you activate its potential, and you get the income from it as a trader or you buy something and you sell it active income so again different skill sets as we go through this thing now i'm a big believer in basically starting with the basics making sure you build up a base a backbone i think it's really really critical in all facets of business businesses without a backbone basically fail in my viewpoint And every business needs a backbone. And you're in the business of building a portfolio. The portfolio is your moat. Your moat is your backbone. So to build a backbone when it comes to real estate, we just want a couple of properties. And of course, 
I think the best way to choose those properties is to understand my Forex growth plan. It's pretty simple. Buy well, good location, great market. And of course, a growth predictor, which makes people really emotional about the real estate and of course, the area, and it kind of helps facilitate capital growth. So we get that. That's very inside the box. We know what to do there. We know that when we start out as a property investor and as we're building that backbone, we're kind of actually building a low-risk model. It's not volatile. It might go up and down 5-10%, but it's not volatile. It's not, I'm going to lose the farm on property. It is really, really simple. Good suburbs, good locations, proven areas, uh, low-risk property investment. So again, we've all got different risk tolerances. I've just found over the years that most people I speak to want to build a foundation first and then go and do fancy stuff later. As I say, one out of a thousand has the Midas touch. They don't even need to build... The foundations, they just go off and do crazy stuff and it seems to work out for them. So generally, as a property investor doing a low-risk model, there's really the idea of just buying some normal real estate, houses, apartments, townhomes in good suburbs inside of our major urban areas. Really, there is, I guess, two models that you can go off and do that with, which are very low risk. You can do something inside of your buying plan where you buy something more modern um, and you do a buy, hold, depreciate, recycle strategy. So you're basically finding a good property. It's a little bit more modern. It doesn't need a renovation, but it's got depreciation allowances, which helps your cash flow and your tax situation. And as the asset improves, it, it allows you to recycle in value. The other version, of course, is uh, brr, which is buy, hold, renovate, and recycle, which is the same model, just you're not going to get your tax deductions. What you're going to do is go out and find a older property, and uh, you're going to tinker with it, give it a little bit of a freshen up, and uh, improve it, and then obviously try and recycle equity out of that asset. So there's really two approaches, if you like, from this kind of space. Um, There's no right or wrong. Uh, It really comes down to the asset itself. If you can find a good asset, that's the main thing. So again, like when uh, we start climbing the investment ladder, we're a bit of an apprentice when we first start out. And really, if you think about it, as a investor, a lot of people first start as homeowners or first-time investors. So really, it's their first time doing anything inside of real estate. They are first-time holders and even first-time sellers as they go through their first phase of investment. So really, for a lot of people who are first or even second-time investors and or homeowners, they are have a different set of skill set to the next level of investment. This is where you tend to find more seasoned investors, uh, they're seasoned property holders, if you like, and they're seasoned at actually selling real estate. They've done it a few times 
They get it. They understand how to push values if they're selling. They understand which assets to hold. And really, they've got the lashes on the back from all of the strange things that happen in real estate, but are still plowing on. And as we climb the investment ladder, we can end up in a place where we're known as a professional or sophisticated investor, uh, which in, also involves sophistication, uh, sophisticated moves holding real estate, and of course, sophisticated moves trading real estate. So it's really the ladder that many people go through as they climb this thing called real estate. And again, um, you know, doing big deals, in my viewpoint, comes with a little bit of time in the saddle because if you build the foundations right, things just get easier and uh, ultimately you want to build that moat as well. So it's interesting if you asked, I guess, seasoned or professional sophisticated property investors, do they own the first property they ever bought? I guarantee you most would probably say, no, they don't. They do not own the first property they bought. They own completely different assets than the first property they ever bought. So if you're a first-time investor, you've done it once or twice, uh, this may resonate with you. You know, you uh, may feel a bit, I guess, I don't know, like uh, what the word is. You may feel a little bit of trepidation around what you're actually holding right now. You may feel like, yeah, did I buy the right thing? Uh, could I have done this better? And uh, it's very natural to go through that sort of process. And for professional, sophisticated, even seasoned investors, we've all been through that as well. Uh, where we bought our first property and, you know, maybe it's not the right one to get us to financial freedom. So first-time investors tend to buy in their backyard. Uh, they usually buy based on sort of, sort of money fear. Uh, quite often when you hear first-time investors tell their story, it's really a story of, well, you know, I went to the bank I had the Dolomite account with and they said I could borrow this and, um, you know, mum threw in some money and I had to get the first home owning grant. And it's usually like uh, based on really just these sort of financial prison parameters that the person is put in. And it's really because they're a bit of a first bet for even the bank to support. And so quite often the first investment for people is not the investments that they end up carrying through to their retirement. And of course, first-time investors kind of have a bit of stab in the dark. They don't really have a you know huge clue as to what makes the better investments and they tend to be very enthusiastic. They want to get something done um, and they also get worn out very easily. Like they look at a few properties, they miss a few deals because their offers aren't good enough. Um, and uh, they end up sort of buying something because they just want to get the deal done. They just want to move on. They're a bit uh, emotionally, I guess, invested in the process and it kind of rattles them quite often. And again, like a lot of the time, first-time investors will buy on gut feel. 
they do sort of level one type research, which is really, you know, drive by a walkthrough um, of the assets, a little bit of sort of Googling of, you know, prices in the neighborhood, um, speak to a, speak to an agent, you know, that, that, that's the kind of research which is, is being done. And I call that level one research. This is not sophisticated investment research. That's just, yeah, that's just going to an open home, seeing other people might be interested in the real estate and getting enthusiastic about the real estate, level one research. And of course, uh, first-time investors, if you like, can often get stuck being first-time investors. And they do create a bit of a scotoma on moving ahead. And really, they start to work out, well, really to become a more sophisticated investor, you've got to learn about money, you've got to learn about time, and you've really got to invest in mindset to get to the next step. They start to realize maybe they've got a lack of knowledge. They own the asset now, but they've got this sort of lack of knowledge overall about investment fundamentals, economics, uh, and maybe there's more to it than level one research. And of course, that takes us to the next category of investor who's kind of been through all of that. The next category I would suggest is a more seasoned investor. They may have bought three or four properties. They've done it a few times. They've heard it all. They've uh, been to all the seminars. They've read all the books. They have. Uh, they are part of the investment world. They live and breathe it a bit more. And they're still building that buy and hold portfolio, but they are also closer to that consolidation phase. So they kind of got one foot in each camp. They've built an asset base and they're working to consolidate that asset base. How they went and bought their assets, which they're taking into consolidation, they didn't take their first property there. They've gone and learned some more skills and they've learned how to add value to their knowledge base, which I think is really, really, really critical. They've learned how to add value to themselves. And they use, I guess, more out-of-the-box level two, level three thinking when it comes to property investment. They don't just find a property in a miserable location, miserable street, and just feel good about it because they're enthusiastic to buy a property. No, they come up with a leverage plan. And usually, seasoned investors think about real estate differently when they acquire it. What they think about is the O's, and I'm going to teach you the O's. The first one is other people's time. How can I buy real estate using other people's time? The second one is other people's money. How can I buy real estate using other people's money so I can conserve my own money? The third is other people's relationships. How can I buy real estate using other people's relationships because I now realize that my first time investments, I didn't really know what I was doing. And this is where, again, other people's relationships, you start to go, well, maybe I need a good mortgage broker. Now I need a good 
uh, buyer's agent or I need a good wealth advisor or I need a good investor advisor or I need a good property strategist, other people's relationships. And the final O, if you like, is other people's designs. Quite often as a seasoned property investor, you'll start to know like how to renovate using certain design criteria. You'll learn how to build using certain design criteria, other people's designs. You're basically borrowing intellect from more seasoned and skilled professionals out in the marketplace. Other people's time, other people's money, other people's relationships, other people's designs. It's how it works. And of course, uh, the idea of being a more seasoned investor is really about being able to scale your portfolio, having a very good balanced portfolio between sort of growth and cash flow, knowing your plan and being really, really focused when it comes to what you're doing, having some really good cohesion around your asset base, and of course, knowing your maths. And of course, this is really what separates first-time investors from more seasoned investors. And you quite often see seasoned investors will have, for example, budget tracker spreadsheets and um, all sorts of detail around the performance of their asset. They're very much, uh, as seasoned investors, capable of going, well, this asset's underperforming. What can I do to improve its performance? Perhaps I should do something to tinker with the asset to make it stand out a bit more and really run the asset like an asset manager, even though they may have a property manager. And so their buying and holding part is in tune. They've got it tuned up. You know, they're, they're seasoned. You know, they're a good pit crew to their own assets and they've got the right assets. And they understand things. Things like, for example... Uh, putting cash into a deal and trying to extract that money back out or putting equity into to a deal and trying to pull that money back out to buy again. And again, for seasoned investors, they probably aren't just jumping on realestate.com and going to a local open home, you know, 10 streets from where they live or uh, you know, shopping on realestate.com based on a budget and, uh, you know, trying to go to an open home to do level one, basically research to own the asset. That's not what they're doing whatsoever. So um, again, like the Midas touch, there are some great deals on realestate.com. Like it's, it, but again, it's like, okay, level one research, level two, level three, level four, what does that actually look like to make sure this real estate works? And, you know, maybe I'll come back and do some more work on what that looks like for everyone. But, you know, for example, a more seasoned investor might do strategies like renovate. They'll know the five R's. They'll get it. They won't buy a property that, you know, is you know, not looking good and then have in their mindset, oh, I'm going to renovate it and not know the maths. They'll know what part of that asset they want to retain, what part of that asset they want to rebuild. They might have to rebuild the entire kitchen, strip it all the way out, rebuild bathrooms, 
They will know what they're going to replace, remove, or repair. And the five R's is critical to this concept of the renovate. So a seasoned investor knows the five R's. A less seasoned investor, a first-time investor, probably is hearing the five R's for the first time. That's just the way it works. And again, a seasoned investor probably knows a good deal. They'll know a good deal at a discounted rate in a top marketplace and strike on the opportunity. They'll also know a discounted deal in it, which is discounted for a reason because no one really wants the asset. Seasoned investing. And of course, for many seasoned property investors, they also use other people's money, other people's relationship, other people's time, and other people's designs. Seasoned investors also look at building real estate. They look at uh, you know grabbing some some land in a awesome awesome place and throwing a house on it. It's a little bit more seasoned for many property investors. Now, it's not to say first-time investors can't do any of this. It's just quite often that the first-time investor doesn't do any of this. Of course, seasoned investors quite often can use other people's time, things like delayed settlements, uh, building a portfolio and settling a property in two or three years' time, knowing that they're going to also be able to work through finance on properties like that. So they're just more skilled. And again, um, when it comes to some of the things that seasoned investors do, they might even do things like, uh, you know, buy a property in installments using technical terms. Uh, They might uh, negotiate on a deal and, uh, you know, get favorable terms with a vendor to do, for example, an installment buyout. So there's just things that property investors, as they learn more, do to build this scalable portfolio. And again, for what I would classify as a first-time investor, they're really going through the phase of acquisition. A seasoned investor has gone through acquisitions and actually gone through it twice because quite often they remove their first-time investments out of the equation. Now they're going into this consolidation and really seasoned investors know how to use offsets. They know how to play around with the financial efficiencies of the world. They know how to eliminate their tax. They know what uh, the plan is. And again, it comes back to, for them, the idea that there is scale, There is balance, focus, cohesion, and they're working the maths very, very well. So the property trifecta is a big part of this puzzle, remember, because the first part is to build those backbone assets, five properties, passive income. Second part is to ignite active income. You find that seasoned investors, again, because they start to run budgets and spreadsheets and start to go, well, I want better performance from this asset rather like a mechanic in a car. I want to tune up this car and I want to activate its income. And so this is where you 
find seasoned investors sit. And for many investors that get to that stage, the maths is starting to work for them because they've built an asset base. Now, that asset base may be, for example, a couple of million dollars. And I've said this a few times on this podcast. It's just so much easier to build more wealth when you have a larger asset base. You know, if you're starting out, you're a first-time investor, you invest $300,000 in a property in a weird little Gopnik town uh, because that's your budget, uh, you're going to need that asset to perform at 100% to go from $300,000 to $600,000. Then you've got $300,000 that you can take over the world with. You need 100% return. Of course, if you've got uh, you know $10 million worth of real estate and it goes by 10%, you've already made a million dollars. So you need less assets. Well, you need less growth if you've got more assets to create wealth. And for a lot of people who end up becoming sophisticated investors, which is the category above seasoned investors, they end up doing just bigger deals. So again, uh, there is a difference between a sophisticated investor and a non-sophisticated investor. And even the government has a rule around who and who isn't a sophisticated investor. So to qualify as a sophisticated investor, you need basically a net asset and gross income test. So you need to meet the criteria. So to be considered... Uh, you as an individual need to either earn more than $250,000 per annum or over the last few financial years or you've got over $2.5 million in uh, net wealth, in net assets. Um, and uh, generally, accountants certify you as a cer certified sophisticated investor. There are some other rules. I won't go completely into it, but uh, you basically need to pass a test, an asset test. The reason the government wants you to pass an asset test is that uh, you've got some skills to do more sophisticated things. And really, obviously, if you're... Uh, got the knowledge to earn $250,000 or more, or you've got the uh, accumulated net wealth of over $2.5 million or more, you're probably uh, going in the right direction in life. What the government doesn't want is a gopnik with $100,000 doing a sophisticated deal. And uh, that's fair enough because a gopnik with $100,000 should probably just start building their asset base. That's that's where they belong. And there's no right or wrong. I'm just telling you the facts. That's what government legislate, and that's the game we've got to play. Now, remember, in the property trifecta, we want to build that backbone. We want to manipulate the cash flow and activate our backbone assets by... Um, pushing those rents up. And then quite often what happens to us 
we end up in a place where we've got a lot of lazy equity and we can't borrow more. And the only way to invest is to take the equity out and use it as basically a cash investment. So you might have 300 grand in equity. You can tap it, but you can't go borrow a million. You just got to spend the 300 grand. So what a lot of investors do is extract money out of assets like property and put it into other asset classes, things like shares. Or uh, one way to remain in-house inside a property is to do developments. And of course, this is where you're targeting a bigger, chunky return. And as a uh, property investor that operates in the sophisticated investment space, the returns you aim for basically at the end of a deal is around 20 to 25%. So if I've got $100,000, I put it into a deal, I'm going to get $20,000, $25,000 back in my return. Now you think about it, you go, well, um, if I had $100,000 and I could borrow a million dollars with that $100,000, that's good leverage. But when you can't borrow a million dollars, uh, you're trying to use equity for cash flow. And uh, this is where people get to when they are going through this concept acquisition consolidation lifestyle. So a lot of people that are deemed sophisticated investors are in consolidation, trying to get to lifestyle. They've built their wealth. They're consolidating the wealth. They're working how to live off more income to go into lifestyle. They've created a asset base. They've created a net wealth position and they're now doing some more sophisticated things. They're deemed a sophisticated investor. So again, like when it comes to what sophisticated investors get up to, they tend to do things like joint ventures, syndications, and it's really an income play for those people. What they do is they get involved with other investors. Uh, they get a prospectus from usually an AFSL holder. The prospectus is, you know, you're investing in a joint venture or syndicated scheme where, you know, the development is going to be, you know, 50, um, you know, townhomes and uh, it's going to take, you know, 18 months to deliver and your return on your investment is going to be 20%, 30%, 25%, etc. Um, and again, like, how it kind of works is the risk profile of that is, is obviously riskier than, for example, the buy and hold backbone strategy. But the return in a chunk is quite often pretty impressive. And again, when you think about how diversity works in that space, for a lot of people who are sophisticated, they haven't got $100,000 out there chasing 25 grand per annum. They've got $500,000 across five different developments chasing $125,000 per annum. And this, again, combined where with the blue chip assets that is the backbone, whereby you are actually manipulating the cash flow even more, 
Combined with that, it can create hundreds of thousands of dollars coming into people's back pocket. But it is a journey. And obviously, joint ventures, syndication, anything where you're changing the use of property, trying to extract the highest and best use from real estate is more volatile than just buying a property that is straightforward, buy and hold. So if you think about uh, what joint ventures actually are, they are the extrapolation of the highest and best use of real estate. So I always use the example of the orange. Uh, What is the highest and best use of an orange? Well, it's actually orange juice. You could go to the local supermarket and you could buy an orange for 50 cents. You go to the fridge and you grab the orange juice, it's probably going to be $7. The highest and best use is orange juice. Same concept in real estate. Can things go wrong uh, more so than just a hold strategy? Absolutely, they can. Can the returns be more spectacular than just a hold strategy in a shorter period of time? Absolutely, they can. So this is how sophisticated investors play. They do bigger deals. And again, it just becomes the way it is because of time in the saddle. Now, for me, it's taken me to become a sophisticated investor 20 years, 20 years to, to, to really, you know, go full sophisticated. And uh, again, like that was because I went through acquisition consolidation and uh, really into this playbook where you can do these kind of different things, joint ventures, syndications. And of course, with joint ventures, what often unfolds is the type of deals are not Uh, building a house, they're not renovating a a house, they're not pre-construction apartments. What they are, are subdivisions and developments. That's the joint venture world. So you go find blocks of land and subdivide it and change the higher and better use. Now, uh, I've done this many times now. I've done, found blocks of land whereby uh, you know, we've been able to find uh, a zoning, a rezoning, a block of land. You turn it from, you know, one major big parcel of land into 35 blocks of land. Obviously, you're trying to extract the value out of that asset. But there's things to do along the way. It's not as simple as just rocking up with some money. There's council to deal with. There's environmental issues to deal with. There's the local frogs you've got to worry about. Oh, my God, there's frogs on the thing. You You can't can't uh you know it's going to cost you more uh there is preliminary drawings drafts work you need to do there is the uh obviously the situation where you may think you're going to get 30 blocks but you actually only get 29 because there's something you didn't account for so you need to be very very seasoned and beyond that sophisticated to actually put these deals together sophisticated investor you may as you join sophisticated investor you've either got to be the person who is a investor a funder 
or you're going to be the person who is the deal maker. And really, that's how it works. Remember, other people's relationship, other people's time, other people's money, other people's designs. And that's really how you end up starting to really accelerate your cash flow position from real estate. Joint ventures, again, it's just a more advanced strategy for many people at a bulk level. Now, as a get started investor, you could absolutely go and do a co-investing thing with your sister. That is could be a great thing for you to do. Um, and again, if you're going to set up something small, just make sure you've got the right documentation, the right prenupt, if you like, because obviously you don't want to have a silly little dispute over money. But with joint ventures, same thing. That's why uh, quite often sophisticated investors basically get a prenup from an AFSL holder who is allowed to give the prenup, the prospectus, on the deal, the risks of the deal. And so uh, quite often what happens is they will partake in those type of deals. Other deals they'll, they'll partake in is what is known as property options. And uh, again, options, great way to make money out of real estate, but quite often for those who've gone through the journey as a property investor into sophisticated spaces. Now, property options, if you're not familiar with them, is pretty, uh, pretty straightforward. It's basically you have an option to... Uh, buy a property at a certain period of time and uh, it allows you to extract the highest and best use out of real estate. However, you when you option a property, you don't actually have a loan on the property or a debt with a bank. Uh, you pay an option fee, not a deposit, and you change the use of a property. Now, this is very, very common in sophisticated deal-making. Um. How it works, if you like, is uh, you find a property and you put an option over it. Now, I just realized I think I had some uh, toast on my face. If you're watching on YouTube and you were seeing bread comes on my face for the last 45 minutes, I apologize. Uh, as I say, it's so early in the morning, the Gopnik tattooist nipple wife has flown off. I had a piece of toast and now I'm doing this. So uh, yeah, maybe I've got to uh, check my rationale around doing early morning podcasts. Hey, uh, property options. So how does it work? So it kind of works like this. I'll explain it. Um, maybe just using an example. Uh, a farmer, it's got a little hobby farm in, you know, close, close enough to the city really would make a great land subdivision or townhouse development. Their little acreage, if you like, uh, is worth in the current use as a residential property, two million bucks. You knock on their door and you say to them, hey, I would like to buy your property. It's worth two million bucks. I'll give you an option over the property and I'll pay you $3 million for the property. Uh, if you let me change the highest and best use of the property and give me the rights over the property as an option, 
what I'm going to do, I'm going to work with town planners, council to get a development application on this property or a rezoning on this property to make money. And uh, the local person, uh, the farmer or whatever, the hobby farmer says, you know what? I don't mind that. I'll take the $3 million. It's more than I was going to get. I'll sign your option. However, I want you to pay $50,000 as an option fee for me to know you're serious. So pay the $50,000. You got the option over the property. You may have an option for five years. Over that time, you work with council, you work with town planners, and you put through a new scheme on the property. You change the highest and best use. Now, obviously, if you're betting on that option, you're betting that you're going to change the highest and best use. And at the end, you're going to have to get uh, stump up and pay $3 million for the property. Uh, but you may actually have made the property worth a lot more. And you've gone off and done that through the development application process. Maybe the property with the DA now with the new zoning, it's worth $7 million. So you get this windfall concept of changing the use of the real estate. And of course, um, you know, this is this is how it works. Uh, this is this is a way of playing the game as sophisticated investors. There are put and calls when it comes to options. You are basically put the option to settle, and there are just basically call options where you can have a stab but walk away. The most important concept here is anyone can use an option, by the way. You could knock on someone's door. You really like their house. You want to buy it uh, and you're saving money. You could knock on their door. It's worth $2 million today and say, hey, I'll buy this property in five years for $2.5 million. Uh, give me an option over your property. Anyone can take an option over anything. It is a legal instrument. It gives you the rights to control a property without owning a property. It's a very interesting concept. So for sophisticated investors, uh, quite often options are used and it's a controlling mechanism. Uh, for sophisticated investors, quite often you can burn a little bit of money doing things like options. I've certainly optioned properties before and, uh, basically for 60 days just to do some DD, um, whereby I did not need to then go on and settle the real estate and uh, do my preliminary works concepts with town planners. And they've said, no way, this is never going to get off the ground. What did I lose? $20,000, $30,000 option fee. So you got to be prepared to play the volatility if you're going to be the deal maker when it comes to being a sophisticated investor. It's not all roses, but it certainly can create good levels of results when done well. And uh, I've certainly optioned, um, you know, a few things in the past which have gone on to be very successful. I actually optioned, uh, you know, up in Newcastle, I think 32 blocks of land. I optioned it from a developer uh, put in calls, had to settle all 32. 
Um, what I was able to do was help locals buy those properties as well as investors. And they and myself, I also um, bought in that estate or profited from the option that I put together because the asset went up so much in value. So that's how it works. That's the idea of sophisticated. So you can see the the difference in, I guess, level one investment is, you know, I'm going on realestate.com, uh, going to the local open home. Uh, there's 10 other people there. I'm really emotional. I should grab this property. It's for me. I've done really no research on the property other than sort of go to the open home. Completely different to becoming a more sophisticated player in the game of investment. How I tend to coach all this is the property trifecta. I think level, uh, the starting level, backbone assets. The next level is working on fine-tuning the assets you've chosen to make them perform really, really well, increasing their cash flow. And as you your net worth grows over time, you drop into the bucket of being a sophisticated investor then you can do more sophisticated deals or be an armchair investor as part of those sophisticated deals. And again, like you're either going to be the deal maker or you're going to be the investor at a armchair level. There's no right or wrong. Uh, the results are usually the same from either party. It's just, uh, again, using your money it's not about the fancy stuff, knowing how to do an option. It's also more about your passive income in retirement, that money bucket. And remember, for seasoned investors, they're really working those rents. Then they start to become more sophisticated and they end up with this triple whammy of wealth, growth assets. They've got uh, high-performing rental properties which they've created extra cash flow in them and then they've got this extra money bucket of lazy equity producing more cash flow and that's that's how people end up on hundreds of thousands of dollars of uh, income from real estate it's a journey though and again like if you got the Midas touch you know you're probably going to go straight for for some of the more volatile things I personally think build a portfolio, trifecta one, trifecta two, hold that portfolio, manipulate its cash flow, watch those assets grow, get to become a net, uh, uh, basically sophisticated investor with a net worth of over 2.5 million, then do sophisticated investments, boom, you're home and host. Hey, I hope you enjoyed the show. I'll catch you on the next one as we talk more real estate. Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Property Investor. To never miss an episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on YouTube. I would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family. In between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.